Our Old Testament lesson today is from Isaiah 60. We heard from some of the prophets there in the children's sermon. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 5, and then 19 through 22, which can be found on page 606 in your pew Bibles, or 1157 in large print. Before I read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for giving us what we need, that we can have life with you. God, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself in nature, more specifically in Jesus, that he has come to rescue us, to save us, even from ourselves. And God, we thank you that you have given us your word, revealing uh, who you are, who we are, that we can know an accurate diagnosis of our problem, as well as what your prescription and solution is. God, we pray that you would help us today to hear your word, that we could come to know you better, to love and trust you more, and that by your word and by your spirit, that you would continue to change us ever more into the people that you created us to be, more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah 60 Begins, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. And skipping to verse 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. And turning to John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. We found on page 874, your pew Bibles are 1673 of the large print. John 13, 12 through 17. And this is the night when Jesus is betrayed, when he's having that last supper with his disciples. And he had taken some time before this to... Um, to wash his disciples' feet. 
And then it picks up in verse 12 and says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we are continuing our series through the book of First John, and so far every sermon title has begun with the word why. And today we're looking at why we live like Jesus. But it's also this Sunday in Advent where we are talking about peace, right? And so we've already had some readings about peace, and we've already had a candle that we lit about peace, and we see on the front of our bulletins we have the word peace. And that's great, but does that solve it? Does lighting the candle bring peace to the world? Does putting the word peace on the bulletin cover bring peace to the world? Or do we light the candle? Do we put it on the bulletin? Do we use the word throughout the sermon and then we go out in the world and we turn on the news and we see violence, violence, hatred, and more violence? And we feel like those uh, that Jeremiah the prophet talked about where we say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Is there peace? Or is there not? We're looking at 1 John. And chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And we're going to see what peace really means and where it really comes from. Here's how John writes this. He says, We know that we have come to know him. That is, God the Father. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference in what John is writing between those who are in the light versus those who are in the darkness. Those who know where they're going and those who don't. And just for an example, uh, you can imagine maybe being on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This, by the way, large water terrifies me. It's just a personal fear, so if you don't connect with this as well as I do, sorry, but terrifying to me. I'm a very weak swimmer. 
Anyway, if you're on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is huge, by the way, way bigger than Texas, and you're in the, in the ocean, you can't see land anywhere. Everywhere you look, every direction you look, it's just nothing but water all along the horizon. And you have no way to navigate. And it's dark, and the stars aren't out. It's cloud cover. You've got no way to navigate at all. Where do you go? How do you find your destination? You know where you want to go, but how do you even know where you are or how to get there? See, that, this, I start describing it, I almost break out in a cold sweat. And, ah, I don't like that at all. But, you know, it's a whole different thing. If the clouds break, if you have uh, the north star that's fixed in the sky, and you say, if that's where that is, then this is where I must be, and this is where I need to go. Whole different scenario. And what John is saying is when people are walking in the darkness, they have no idea where they're going. They're blinded. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they're going. And it should be terrifying. But what happens is, instead, what we get is people who claim that they still know where they're going, even though they're walking in darkness. Who kind of put that uh, being terrified aside and say, no, 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 I know God. And so what John is giving us here are some tests of Okay, if you say you know God, let's, let's test that out. Let's see if that's really true, if that's really God that you know, or if you're just fooling yourself. And so he gives us some tests. First one is this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So John has right there linked up actually knowing God with keeping his commands. That's one of the ways, by the way, of referring to the whole of the Old Testament and his law. And what this is saying is you cannot separate the one true God from his word. The way that he has revealed himself, the way that he has said, this is how life is to be. This is how life is to be lived and live with me. You can't separate that. And you'll find a lot of people who try to do that. And it'll... and try to do it ourselves. Where we say, you know, you know, I like I, I believe in God. I believe that there's some, you know, life force that's out there and I kind of combine my idea of uh, God from, you know, a little I'll take a little bit of Christianity, I'll take a little bit of new age spirituality, I'll take a little bit of, you know, <laughs> old wives tales and email forwards and I'll mix all that together with just a dash of Oprah on the side and that's what I believe in. <laughs> and we say, okay, so do you really know God, or have you created an idol that just seems really nice to you? And John says, well, here's one way you can tell. Are you actually following his commands? Not, and that doesn't mean perfectly, are you, are you living an absolute perfect life, but are you actually taking seriously the things that God has said in his word, as his commands? Because if we know the true God, and we know that this is the way that he's revealed himself, and we know that this is, uh, he's revealed not only the best way for life for us, but even his own character in the uh, law that he's given. We can't set those aside and then still have claimed to know the true God. So that's test number one. Test number two. Um, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Oh, wow. Here again, we have people who may say, yes, I know him. I know, in fact, here's how I can prove that I know him. I take the law of God so seriously. 
And you know who could have said that? Any one of the Pharisees could have said that. I absolutely take the law of God seriously. That's how I know that I know the true God. And yet, we see that Jesus is all the time getting in trouble with the Pharisees. And we see that um, the Pharisees are all the time getting in trouble with Jesus. Because even though they did take the law of God very seriously, they took the commands very seriously, and they tried to obey them just really to the letter. They had no relationship with God. They didn't really know him. They didn't love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest of all the commands, right? Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest of all the commands? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't stop there. We'll get to that. But that's the greatest of all the commands. And what, and he said, everything else comes from these. All the other commands. But what the Pharisees were trying to do is let's cut God out of the picture. And we'll just go with the commands. And so what some people try to do is say we will cut the commands out and we'll just try to have some sort of uh, you know, spirituality with God separate from his law. And what others do is say, well, we'll just cut God out and we'll just have a relationship with the commands and the law. And what John is saying is you can't do either one. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, uh, when he's all the time getting in trouble for not keeping the law, he doesn't do the things on the Sabbath day that the Pharisees were doing on the Sabbath. So you're breaking the law. And so he's getting accused of this all the time, of setting the law aside. And he says, no, no, no. I did not come, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then he actually goes through, and if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of the things he's doing over and over, is going back to the law, back to the law, back to the law, and saying, this is what you've heard that it's teaching, and it's not teaching that at all. Here's, let me tell you what it's really teaching. Here's what it's all really about. And it goes much deeper than any sort of surface-level obedience to the law. And this is what we see over and over. And then what we see in Jesus is somebody who actually fulfills the law, who lives perfectly, who really cannot be convicted of breaking any of the law. He upholds it all, but in a much deeper way because he's doing it out of a relationship with God, not in place of that. And so we see in Jesus the one who is loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who is living a life of complete trust and obedience, no matter what everybody around him is saying, no matter what uh, the future is holding for him, as he faces the cross itself, he continues to live in trust and obedience to God. Even to the point, just, even to the point on the cross, even when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Still when he dies, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you know what this is saying? It's when all trace of God seems to be absent, when there doesn't seem to be any evidence for the reality and the presence of God right there. Jesus says, and still I trust you. Even still I trust you. That's not what we do, is it? We'll say, I will trust you as long as things go well. I will trust you as long as I understand what you're up to. I will trust you as long as... No, it says if we really know God, we trust him. We live like Jesus. We live in complete trust and obedience to God out of this living, loving relationship that we have with him. No matter what the circumstances are. 
Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He's the only one who shows us what it really looks like to know God and to live in obedience to him. John, John kind of takes a, a pause here to say, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. I love this little exchange he has, because you're, as you first read through it, you're like, John, I think you're confused. I'm not writing you a new command. You know what? Actually, I am writing a new command. <laughs> well, which is it? But what he says here is beautiful. He says, I'm not writing you a new command, as though love for God and obedience to his commands is something brand new. This is the same thing that we've had always. That if we come to know God, that we know that we don't obey him in order to uh, earn his acceptance. This is the way um, Tim Keller talks about all religions. And he says, religion says, uh, obey God and then you're accepted. But the gospel says, yeah, obey and therefore you're accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted and therefore I obey. But the obedience is not a condition to earn the acceptance, nor is it a condition of keeping the acceptance. The obedience is part of what flows out of this life of a relationship with God. And this is how it's always been. And so it's not, a, it's not a new command. And yet he says, but it is a new command. Because even though you can look all the way back to Genesis and you work your way through and you can see this same message from God, this is how life is to be lived. This is how that ought to go. Through the whole of the Old Testament, we don't see a single person actually do it. Not one. And he says, and this is why it's a new command now. Even though it's the same message from before, now we have Jesus. Now we've seen him. And we've seen the way that this kind of life actually looks. We've seen what it looks like for somebody to actually live in a completely loving and trusting relationship with God and complete obedience to his commands. We've seen what that looks like. And in that way, it's new. But it's new in another sense as well. He says, in, um, I am writing a new command. It's truth is seen in him. It's in Jesus. And in you. And in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Jesus has not just come to be our example. To say, live like this, good luck. Because <laughs> we've already seen we can't do that. Not on our own. But... We see in Jesus how life should look, what that should look like for us. But then in him, we also have a power to live this way we've never had before. We see that he, has, he was the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that we could actually have a relationship with God that we couldn't have before. Not apart from him. And that as we live in him, he enables us to do things we couldn't do before. Not only with this relationship with God, uh, but then to be able to live trusting God in all things, knowing that he accepts us completely already. All right, so here's the final test. Um, Final test. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. It almost seems like John has changed subjects, changed topics 
but he hasn't. It's the exact same thing he's been talking about this whole time already. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he can't stop himself there. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. On these two. He's asked for one, and he can't just give the one. Because they are so closely linked together. And this is why John can say, if we really claim, and this is one of the other things that can happen, is we can claim, yes, I love God, I know him, I know the true God, I know what it's like to live like Jesus, and I know what it's like to obey his commands, and yet, he says, but if we still harbor hatred in our hearts for our brothers and sisters, he says, and everything else we may have claimed is really a lie. Because love for God and love for other people is so closely intertwined. We cannot separate those. Jesus couldn't even separate those in his answer he gives. And when you look at Jesus going to the cross and you say, does he go to the cross because he loves God or because he loves us? The answer is yes. Yes, it's both. And this, by the way, is where we see the true answer for peace. That was the question we originally brought. Peace. What brings peace? And part of that has to do with what true peace is. It's not just an absence of violence. But it's that wholeness, that completeness. It's the way things ought to be. The way things were originally created before sin messed it all up. Before everything gets broken down in our relationships with God and with each other. And in Jesus, we see the answer. We can't bring peace ourselves between ourselves and God. We can't do it between ourselves and each other. But in Jesus, that can be accomplished. This is what happens on the cross. This is where uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. We have this ministry of reconciliation that has been uh, committed to us. We have been made right with God, made right with each other in Jesus. And this is what we are to to live, and this is what we are to, to share, to communicate this world. I want to go back to one thing we said earlier, or didn't say earlier, but should have. Verse 5, when it says, If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this point just has to be made because too often we look at the rules that God gives as these negative things that if I, well, if I have to, I have to, but you know, maybe I'll get bonus points with God for doing it or something. But what it says is love for God is truly made complete in the person who's obeying God. It doesn't say, if you obey, then God will love you. What it says is, if you obey, you show that you love God. Right? And that love for God is actually truly made complete in us as we obey. Here's the thing. There are passage after passage, we won't go through them all right now, of saying what God wants for us. What he has predestined us for is actually to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. The way in which Jesus was living in complete love and trust of God. That's what he wants for us. When God tells us, this is how you are to live, if we are really loving and trusting him, then we do those things. And here's the great thing. 
as we do those things, not only is that our way of responding in, in love and trust of God, but as we do them, we learn more of what it's like to trust God, more what it's like to live that way. And even as we're practicing tra- trusting God, even as we're practicing living in that love, it grows his character in us. And we become people who are more loving and more trusting. And we start to see the fruit of that in our lives. This is what happens when the Spirit comes into us and we begin to practice living in relationship with God in everything that we do. And so, love for God is truly made complete in us. We want to know how to obey the the two great commandments, love God and love others. We live like Jesus. You want to know how to uh, how to how to, uh, want to know how to find peace in this world? We live like Jesus. There are there are many ways of looking at the situations in the world, and the way in which we diagnose the problem will often determine the solution we come up with. I heard a radio commentator several weeks ago talk about something the Pope was doing. I don't even remember what it was at the time. The Pope had done something, and people, reporters were asking about it, and he gave his answer, this is why I'm doing this. And the political commentator, you know, I heard what the Pope had said, and not that I agree with everything he says, but (laughs) what he was saying there, and I said, yeah, of course, that totally makes sense. That's what Jesus would have said. (laughs) That's a very Christian response. The political commentator had no way of viewing this from a Christian response. All he could see was the political, the political, the political. And so when he heard this, he said, you know, I don't even know what that means. And then he stopped and he said, wait, no, I bet I do know what he means. He means this. And he spun it into something political. (laughs) The way that we view the world will often determine how we diagnose the problem and how we come up with the solution. If we see that God is the one who has made the world... If we see he's the one who's revealed himself to us in his word, and most specifically in Jesus. If we understand that that is where, that is where true knowledge comes from, not only of who God is, but who we are, how the world works, and why it doesn't work, then we understand what the problem is and what the solution is. When we're looking for peace, there may be political things that we can do, but I will promise you this. The solution to violence will never be solved through the firing of a gun at our enemies, nor will, it be fi- nor will it be solved with the signing of more gun control legislation. It's not only a political problem. The problem of violence, the problem of the lack of peace that we have in the world, is in every single heart. And it's a problem that exists between us and our Creator. It's a problem that exists between us and each other. But the solution to it While there may be political ramifications, the solution to it is at this table. And when we come to this table, what we are celebrating week after week, again and again, is that God has already done what it takes to bring us back into peace with him and with each other. And he's calling us to join him in that life of peace, that we would be peacemakers in the world as we live like Jesus.
Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, and to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's the one who washed his disciples' feet and said, now that you've seen me do this, do this for each other. He's shown us the way. He's given us the life. He is the truth. May we live like Jesus and show love and peace to a world that needs it so bad. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.